Because God loves us, he often allows us to suffer, which is designed for his glory and our good. Our faith is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, who gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you'd open to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, as you know, we're in a study of the Gospel of John, and today we're going to open uh, chapter 11. There's 21 chapters in uh, the book of John, so we're about halfway through if you just look at chapter numbers. However, by chapter 11, we are now about two weeks away from the cross. So the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain 89 chapters. So four Gospels, 89 chapters. 27 chapters, or about one-third of them, focus on Passion Week, on the last seven days of Christ's life on earth, cover his final teaching to the disciples, his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection. The whole point of the Gospels, of course, is to highlight that Jesus Christ came to earth for the express purpose of dying for the sins of the world and then rising again to conquer sin and death on our behalf. Three months have passed since the end of John chapter 10. So there's about a 90-day, roughly, uh, break between the two. The Feast of the Dedication, uh, Feast of Lights, Hanukkah took place uh, in chapter 10, uh, about December, and we are now around March-ish at that point in time. Uh, Jesus is on the east side of the Jordan River. It's nearly time for Passover, which occurs Uh, in April, May, I mean, sorry, March, April, and that is the appointed time for Jesus to go to the cross at that point. Perea, uh, east of the Jordan River, is about 18 to 20 miles due northeast of Jerusalem. You walk down Jerusalem, Jerusalem is about 2,600 feet above sea level, and of course the Dead Sea is 1,800 feet below sea level. So you're going downhill, the Jericho Road it's called, Uh, To get there, John the Baptist began his ministry here east of the Jordan in the region of Perea about three and a half years earlier, and they're having great success now. Jesus and the disciples, many, many people are coming to faith. You saw that in the last verse of, of chapter 10. Now, John 11 records the final sign that Jesus re did before going to the cross. There's hundreds of supernatural miracles that Christ performed, and John records seven, only seven. And he calls them signs because a sign points to something. And all the signs that John records point unmistakably to the deity, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember, the seven signs are turning the water into wine at Cana, healing a nobleman's son, healing a man who was paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Siloam, multiplying loaves and fishes to feed the 5,000, walking on the water at the Sea of Galilee, healing a man born blind in John 9. And finally, today, we'll take a look at the first part of raising Lazarus from the dead. Apart from his own resurrection, this miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead, was the capstone miracle of Jesus' public ministry. Now, it's not the first time he raised someone from the dead. He's raised two others from the dead. Prior, he raised the only son of a widow who lived in Nain, the village of Nain, and they were taking the son out on a bier, getting ready to bury him, and Jesus stopped the procession, raised him from the dead in the spot, and restored him to his mother. He also raised the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus. Jairus was a palace official. His daughter had died, and Jesus raised her from the dead. Now, both these events take place very shortly after death. The raising of Lazarus took place four days after death, when physical decomposition was well underway. So it was a different sort of a, a, a physical miracle. So this chapter, this event, raising Lazarus from the dead, can really be divided into four sections. We have the preparation for the miracle, the first 16 verses. The arrival of Jesus in Bethany takes about 20 verses, 17 to 37. The actual miracle itself is about eight verses, um, 38 to 44. 
and the results are consequences of the miracle 45 and 57. So it's going to take a while. We won't get through this today. Let's pick up the narrative in the first verse of chapter 11. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Here's the principle. Because God loves us, he often allows us to suffer, which is designed for his glory and our good. Let me repeat that. That's counterintuitive to how human nature works. Because God loves us, he often allows us to suffer, which is designed for his glory and our good. Now, we really know very little about Lazarus other than what is written here. The name Lazarus derives from the word Eliezer. Eliezer, of course, was the son of Aaron the high priest. The name Eliezer means God will help. And I would guess that you would agree that God, in fact, helped Lazarus by raising him from the dead. Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, live in the little village of Bethany. Bethany means house of misery or house of poverty. So if you are a woman and you have the name Bethany, the name Bethany is lovely to say, but its meaning is very dark. It means house of poverty. It seems as though the parents of these three kids are deceased. They're siblings. They seem to be unmarried. There is no mention of family members. And it seems that they live together in the village of Bethany in the same household. Bethany is a village about two miles east of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is on a hill. The Kidron Valley is to the east. You walk down the Kidron Valley. You walk up the side of Mount, uh, Mount of Olives. And just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, facing the Dead Sea, is the little village of Bethany. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem. There's a very heavily traveled road called the Jericho Road that comes from Jericho up the mountain, right past Bethany. So this is a very heavily traveled sort of a freeway, if you will, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably knew a lot of people that came through Bethany on the way from the whole eastern region of this country to Jerusalem and to the temple. Now John 12, we'll get to in a few weeks, it records that shortly after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus had Jesus over for dinner. And at that dinner, you recall, Mary opened a very costly uh, alabaster box of perfume, about a year's salary to buy that, and offered and poured it on his feet, wiped his feet with her hair as an offering of thanksgiving and worship. And this deed became very well known. Jesus said, wherever this is taught, wherever my name is remembered, they're going to talk about Mary who did this. So her name is identified with this sacrificial deed of anointing the Lord for his burial. John writes this book, the Gospel, about 90 AD, which is almost 60 years after the events have occurred. And he is using this event 60 years later to identify exactly what Mary he's talking about. Now, Mary is a very common name in Israel. When you get to the cross and the resurrection, there's Marys everywhere. There's probably four or five listed, and you're trying to say, who's who? What's the name? Who are you connected with? Mary comes from the name Miriam, very common name. That was the Moses' sister. And the name Mary means either beautiful, it actually means beloved, and it means bitterness, which is interesting. Very, very common name, Mary. We are not told what sickness Lazarus had, and only that he was ill, and apparently no medical intervention could help. So the sisters sent a messenger um, down the hill, to uh, Perea to let Jesus know that, quote, he whom you love is sick. Now, the Greek word for love here is phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O, phileo, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It, it means a, a warm, friendship, generous affection of a close friend, phileo. That's the kind of love we have here. Clearly, Jesus was close to this family 
Love, if you look at the first six verses, is mentioned a number of times. And notice that the sisters did not say what you would expect. You would expect them to say, Jesus, the one who loves you is sick. They didn't say that. They said, Jesus, take note, he whom you love is sick. Which means they knew that Jesus loved all three of them and Lazarus. They knew that Jesus has healed hundreds of people over his three-year ministry. Most of the ones he healed are strangers. So you would expect that they would assume that Jesus would certainly want to come and heal a dear friend whom he loved and had an intimate relationship with. Pretty clear they hoped Jesus would come immediately, but they trusted that he would do the right thing. They didn't tell him what to do, which is fascinating to me. They just said, Lord, he whom you love is sick. They didn't say, get over here quick and do something about it. They trusted the Lord to do the right thing. I think sometimes in our prayer life, we feel that we need to tell God what to do or he won't get it right. You know, Lord, we have to give you the specifications for what we want, and I know the prayer is answered when you do it my way. <clears throat> that doesn't work very well with the Lord. By the way, there's nothing wrong with being specific with the Lord, right? Make your request be known to God. As long as you say at the end, not my will, but thine be done, because your plan is better than my plan. Now, they knew that they were asking Jesus to take a great risk. He's 20 miles east of Jerusalem. He went there three months ago because the Jews tried to kill him for the fifth time. And now they're asking him to come back up the hill to Jerusalem, or two miles where the Jews are still trying to kill him. So this was not a risk-free trip. If he's coming back up the hill, Jesus is putting his life in danger. So they're clearly desperate. Something needs to be done. They did what we should do. When they had a problem, they took it to Jesus. When you have a problem, Jesus should be the first person you talk to, not the last person you talk to. Now, John tells us again in verse 5 that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This word for love is not phileo, it's agape. That's God's unconditional, divine, sacrificial, other-centered love. And John notes that Jesus loved each one of them by name. God knows your name, by the way. And he knows your DNA. And he knows exactly what you struggle with. And he knows exactly what brings you joy. God knows us far better than we know ourselves. And we make a mistake when we think that we know ourselves. The truth of it is we don't know ourselves anywhere near as well as we think we do. Right? All you do is put a tea bag in hot water and you find out how strong it is. All God does is put your life in hot water and you get some revelation about what you're made of. And it's usually not comforting, right? It usually causes us to be dependent on the Lord, which is one of his points, right? The Lord loves you, but that doesn't mean you won't get sick. He says, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were loved individually, and yet Lazarus got sick, and it was a sickness that was a mortal illness. God's love often involves suffering. Jesus suffered, and he was loved. Paul suffered, and he was loved. Job suffered. The prophets suffered. Every one of the apostles was martyred. And throughout history, God's saints have suffered and struggled and had trials and troubles and tribulations. Now, this is the opposite of the health and wealth gospel. Health and wealth gospel is not biblical because health and wealth heresy puts me in charge, right? The health and wealth gospel says, you're in charge and you tell God what he's going to give you and he's going to give you only health and wealth because you deserve it, right? You know what's best more than God knows what's best. Now, the reality is, we live in a broken world. We live in a sinful world, and one of the consequences of sin coming during Adam and Eve's uh, rebellion against the Lord is suffering and death. Sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. So it's absolutely folly to conclude that God owes us only health and wealth. Every saint that's walked with the Lord Jesus Christ, including his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he loved more than anything else, suffered. 
See, God loves us to give us what we need most. And what we need most, more than health, more than healing, more than wealth, is to be drawn closer to Him. That's what we ultimately need. Psalm 73 says, the nearness of God is what? My good. The closer you're drawn to the Lord, the better you are. And everything good is found in Jesus. And sometimes God allows us to suffer to draw us closer to Him. Why? So He can bless us with His presence. He can bless us with His love. He can bless us with His grace. And He can bless us by allowing us to see and share in His glory. Sometimes God allows us to suffer to correct us. We're headed down a path. That path is not where He wants us to be. And He allows pain in our life to move us in a direction. And that direction is always to shape us more like Jesus. You know, I've often wondered if marble had feelings, then sculptors would be viewed as terrorists because all they do is whack the marble with a crystal, right? The Lord is shaping our lives, and sometimes he takes a chisel, sometimes he takes sandpaper, right? And if we get really stubborn, he just gets a bigger sledgehammer, right? He knows what we need, and he's going to make us like Jesus, Romans 8, 29, 30. Sometimes God allows us to suffer, and it's not about us at all. It's about equipping us to minister to others who are suffering. And if you've never had heartbreak, your capacity to comfort someone who has heartbreak is really limited. If I am heartbroken, who am I going to talk to? I want to talk to somebody who's had their heart broken. If I'm suffering, I want to talk to someone who's suffered. They will understand beyond what I can explain. And when you're in the middle of suffering, it's pretty tough to say, people come up, I see this on television. Someone's in the middle of a tragedy, and they say, well, how are you feeling? Really? How are you feeling? I mean, they've been through a tragedy, and this interviewer says, how are you feeling? I'm going, you've never had your heart broke, or you wouldn't talk such stupid, right? I, it's just mindless. Anyway, I'm on a roll here, sorry. <laughs> So the messenger comes and he tells Jesus the situation. Lazarus is sick. Jesus responds in a very counterintuitive way. He sends the messenger back to the sisters. I never figured that out until this week. He sends the mess messenger back to the sisters with a message. Verse 4 is the message. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified. Now, that message was for Mary and Martha, but the disciples overhear it because they're right there. And we know Martha got the message because later on when Jesus is ready to raise Lazarus and she, Jesus says, you know, roll away the stone, she says, oh, Lord, he's going to stink by now. And Jesus says in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you will believe, you will see the glory of God? Verse 4. He had already sent her the message. This message is, this sickness is not going to end in death. I want you to see the timeline. Two sisters send a message to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. They're 20 miles up the hill. It takes a day to walk 20 miles down the hill to tell Jesus. That's day one. The messenger comes on the east side of the Jordan River and he says, here's the message. Jesus gets the message at the end of day one. And instead of walking back up by day two, he sticks around for two more days. Day two and day three, he waits in Perea. Takes one day to travel, so day four, he walks up the hill. He arrives at Bethany, day four. And what do we find out? We are told Lazarus has been dead for four days. What does that mean? We know he was alive when the sisters sent the message. They said, him who you love is sick. He died after the messenger walked down the hill to get Jesus, he died on day one. He was already dead by the time Jesus got the message. And Jesus knew it. Notice very carefully what Jesus said and what he didn't say. He didn't say that Lazarus would not die. He said that Lazarus' sickness is not going to end in death. As a matter of fact, Jesus already knew that Lazarus was dead at the time. Lazarus did die, but Jesus knew that he wasn't going to stay dead. See, the end result of Lazarus' sicknesses was not death, it was God's glory and the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
remember, chapter 9, we looked at the man born blind, and the disciples said, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or his parents sin? Jesus said, no. He was born blind, quote, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. He was blind for the glory of God. The purpose for Lazarus' sickness and his subsequent death and resurrection was, quote, for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and by the way, you're reading the end of the story. You already know how this turns out. That's no test of faith. You already read the end of the story. They didn't know the end of the story at all. But when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it did three things that glorified God. It unmistakably demonstrated Jesus' deity, his power over life and death, creator God. Number two, it immeasurably strengthened the faith of Jesus' disciples. I mean, they've seen him walk on water. They've seen him eat 5,000. They've seen him heal a man born blind. And now they see him raise somebody from the dead. You think their faith didn't get a testosterone boost or whatever? I mean, it was remarkable. And number three, it incited the Jewish religious leaders to crucify him as soon as possible, which was going to happen in about a week, a little bit more, probably two weeks, right on God's eternal timeline. All three of these resulted in the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father being glorified on earth and glorified in heaven because God's eternal plan was taking place precisely on God's schedule. Don't ever get confused by timelines down here and timelines up there. The only ones that matter are timelines up there. Humanity thinks they're in charge of things. It all works out according to God's perfect plan. Now, to glorify, of course, means to praise, to adore, to exalt, and to magnify. So what's counterintuitive, Jesus hears Lazarus is sick, and he waits two full days before leaving for Bethany. Jesus, who loves his family waits for Lazarus to die. And that delay is a demonstration of his love. And he waits so that these two sisters, whom he loves, will go through the anguish of losing their beloved brother in death. He delays so that at the end, they will have a deeper understanding of God's power, God's love, God's grace, so that their faith will grow when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And we have a hard time reconciling God's delay with God's love. See, we're convinced that since God loves me, when we have a problem, we think that God should demonstrate his love to us by doing what? Drop everything you're doing in heaven and earth, Lord, and I'm the center of the universe, and get over here and fix my problem ASAP because I do not deserve to be in pain. I am what you should be all about, Jesus, right? That's what we think love is. That's because we think our diagnosis, our solution, and our timeline, of course, are the correct ones. That's not what God thinks. This verse has forced me to think incredibly differently than I did before I came to Christ. Isaiah 55, 8. God is speaking. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. When you fly over planet Earth, you're 37,000 feet up, you get a perspective that you don't get when you're waiting in the crosswalk for the light to hurry up and give me a walk sign, right? Well, the Lord in glory sees everything from beginning to end, and we don't. So Jesus is always operating on his Father's timetable, not human timetable. There is a desperate need in Bethany, and Jesus knows it, but he's operating on his father's timeline to accomplish his father's purpose, not Mary and Martha's timeline, and not your and my timeline. God does exactly what he does when he wants to do it for his glory and our good, and that may involve suffering, and it almost always involves us waiting, right? You want to operate on God's calendar, he's not going to change his calendar. You need to pray for his time and his way and his will be done in your life and then submit to it. Verse 7. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go up to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbled because the light is not in him. Here's the principle. While we are on earth, God enables us to live without fear as we do his work. While we are on earth, God enables us to live without fear as we do his work. So Jesus is down in Perea where it's safe, and he's planning on going back up to Bethany, 20 miles uphill, where his enemies are actively plotting his death. And the disciples know that, and they remind Jesus, look, they just tried to kill you 90 days ago for the fifth time. Why do you want to go back there again, right? And Jesus gives them this cryptic response referring to walking in daylight and stumbling at night. Now, the Jews and many people in that era, they divided daylight hours into 12 segments, Right? 12 segments. There were 12 demarcations of time in daylight. And you can figure this out. Wintertime daylight was shorter than summertime daylight, so their hours were flexible, but they had 12 divisions. There's only so much time you can work. They didn't have electricity. You worked when the sun was up, and you stopped working when the sun went down because you could hurt yourself if you tried to work and you couldn't see what you were doing. So the sun controlled when you worked, and that's how many hours there were in a day, and that's how many hours you could work. And you worked when you had opportunity, when the daylight was, because when night came, what did Jesus say? No one can work. Now, the spiritual meaning, Jesus is speaking of himself. He says, as long as I'm alive, I'm doing my Father's work on earth. No one can kill me until it's God's perfect time for me to go to the cross. Until then, all these human plots to kill me are unsuccessful. So I can go to Judea, I can go to Jerusalem, I can go to the temple, and if it's not God's time for me to go to the cross, I am bulletproof because it's not God's time. However, night is coming. My earthly work is coming to a close. He's a couple of weeks away from the cross, and he's going to stumble in death. He's going to be raised again. The same is true for us. Psalm 139, it's a very comforting psalm. Psalm 90 tells us the same thing. You have an expiration date. Now, it's not stamped on your bottom, so don't bend over and try and look. But you do have an expiration date. You don't know it. But your creator does know it, down to the nanosecond, the day you showed up and the day you're going to leave here, right? Jesus is saying to us, as long as it is day, which means as long as you're alive, as long as you have opportunity on planet Earth, You need to do the work God has assigned you to do. And if you don't know what it is, you better skip with the program and ask him, right? As long as we are doing God's work and living in obedience to whatever he calls us to do, and that may not be anything fancy. It may be sweeping the sidewalk, changing baby diapers, watching your grandchildren, taking care of elderly mom and dad. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. It just needs to be what God's called you to do. You can live without fear because you are bulletproof until Jesus says, It's time to come home, right? Don't live in fear. Verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Here's the principle. God often strengthens our faith in him by first allowing us to experience problems that have no human solutions. Let me say that again. God often strengthens our faith in him by first allowing us to experience problems that have no home use solutions. And I'm looking around the room and I can, hear, I can see you going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, man, I've lived that. That's me. That's me for 10 years. That's me for 20 years. That's me last week. That's me this morning, right? First allowing us to experience problems that have no human solutions. Now, sleep is often used in Scripture and elsewhere as a euphemism for death. A, d- a dead person appears to be sleeping right there at rest. And the comment that if Lazarus has been sick and is now sleeping, the disciples say, that's good. If he's sleeping, he's healing, right? Sleep is good. Sleep is recovery. If you're sleeping, your body's healing. 
What they're also saying is, that's really good because if he's getting well, we don't need to go to Jerusalem. We can stay down here where it's safe. We don't have to go up to Judea. You know, it's dangerous up there. Those Pharisees want you dead. Jesus then tells them, Lazarus is dead. Now, he knows that by omniscience. He's God. No one's told him he's dead. He's been told he's sick. He knows he's dead. He actually said a phrase that when you put them together, they're not intended to go together, but they're jarring. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. It says right there. Lazarus is dead, and I am glad. Why is Jesus glad that Lazarus died? Because he knows how the story's going to end. And you don't get a resurrection, a resuscitation without dying, correct? No sense resuscitating someone that's still alive. He says, Lazarus is dead and I am glad that I wasn't there because your faith that I am God's Messiah will be strengthened immeasurably when you see me raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, at this point in time, they have no clue what he's talking about. He hasn't told them he's going to raise Lazarus. He said, your faith is going to be strengthened in me. And that's a mystery to them. They don't know how. They don't know the end of the story. Guess what? That's us. We live a day at a time, sometimes an hour at a time, sometimes, you know, from dinner to dinner, and we don't know the end of the story. He knows the end of the story. And so what he does makes sense from the end of the story's perspective, and it may not make sense for where you are in process right now. Now, Thomas is often called Didymus. Didymus is Greek for twin. So the presumption is, is Thomas was a twin. There's an, actually an old tradition that of the 12 disciples, Thomas looked the most like Jesus physically. So Jesus was his twin. What the implication of that is is pretty interesting. It means that Thomas was at the most risk of being accidentally murdered by the Jews because he looked the most like Jesus. So for Thomas to say, let's go to Jerusalem that we can die with him, that just wasn't theory. He looked like Jesus, and he was number one target. If they missed Jesus, they would get him by accident. Of course, we often call him Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead, what, until he saw him face to face. We remember Thomas for his worst moment, not his best moment. God doesn't define you and I by our worst moments. Have you had some worst moments in the last week? I've had some this morning, right? We should not define ourselves, and we should certainly not define others by their worst moments or based on our own failures. Here, courageous Thomas, bold Thomas, speaks to the disciples and says, we're going to follow Jesus. If it means our death, it means our death. By the way, that's not pessimism. That was reality. That was a very realistic risk for them. Verse 17. So when Jesus came to Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them, considering their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day, Here's the principle. God's delay is not God's denial. When God intervenes in our lives, he often solves problems we don't even know we have. Let me say that again. God's delay is not God's denial. When God intervenes in our life, he often solves problems we don't even know we have. Now, Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, and he's been dead four days. That didn't happen by accident. In Israel, there was no embalming like the Egyptians did. The Egyptians spent a fortune trying to preserve the body, the carcass of someone who had died. They embalmed them, turned them into mummies. Israel, it was a very warm climate. When you died, decomposition set up immediately, so they buried the dead the same day they died. Same day. And there was a superstition among the Jews in that era that the spirit of a dead person would hover around the body for three days. 
seeking re-entry into that person. And there, based on that, they believe there was still hope of resuscitation for 72 hours, because they believe the spirit was hovering over the body for 72 hours. However, after three days, the spirit departed, and there was no hope of recovery or resuscitation. So it's been four days. So in the Jewish mind, now Lazarus is now really dead. Good and dead. He's not mostly dead, he's all dead, right? <laughs> Jesus waited four days on purpose when all human hope was gone, right? So that when he did resuscitate Lazarus, it will be clear that God did it. By the way, I use the word resuscitation on purpose. This is not a resurrection. When you are resurrected, you will get a heavenly body that is designed to live in heaven. Lazarus gets his old body resurrected, and he gets to die twice. Some of the old painters always show Lazarus coming out of the grave with an unhappy look on his face. He's back here, and he gets to die twice. You would be unhappy too, probably. Everybody else is thrilled, and you're going, you have no idea where I've been, right? Probably Abraham's bosom, Luke 16. So Bethany is really close to Jerusalem, two miles away. So there's a very large crowd of people who've come up the hill from Jerusalem to comfort Mary and Martha. And we, in our culture, our funerals last one to two hours. I mean, if it's a two-hour funeral service, we go, man, come on. Well, those funerals lasted seven days, right? And the first seven days, actually they lasted 30 days. The first seven days were the most formal and the intense part of it. And those in mourning for the dead really took this to literal extremes. They did not groom themselves. They didn't brush their teeth. They didn't shave. They walked barefoot. They were disheveled. They didn't comb their hair. I mean, they looked a mess. They looked like street people. They were in mourning. They might put sackcloth or, or, or ashes on their head, etc. And the family would hire professional mourners, usually women, to wail and express their grief. This was not the stiff upper lip business. These funerals were very loud, very noising, lots of wailing and screaming and yelling, kind of over the top, um, charismatic, we would call it, filled with the spirit. They were chaotic affairs, and they were loud and noisy for the first seven days. And relatives or friends would stay near the home or in the home uh, for a week. And they would, of course, bring much food. There was a lot of meals that were shared, et cetera, et cetera. After a week, the most formal part of the morning was over, but there was a 30-day period after death when family and friends stayed close and expressed support, etc. So all this is going on. There's a really four days now of loud, noisy wailing and, and, and uh, uh, sorrowing. And Martha hears that Jesus has arrived at the edge of the village. She gets up, leaves the house, and goes to meet him. Now, we don't know this for sure, but Martha appears to be the older sister of the responsible one, right? The woman who took initiative. This was not a fainting flower. Martha was taking action, and she comes to Jesus, and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And we really, I would love to see your face. I'd love to read her body language. What was she communicating, you know? Was it regret? Was it rebuke? Was it a polite way of saying, where were you when we needed you? And both sisters make the exact same statements to the word. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. They've been talking, right? So clearly, both sisters are filled with sorrow, grief, regret, frustration. There's two assumptions here that are important to understand. First assumption, if Jesus really loved them, he would have taken immediate action and prevented Lazarus from dying. He should have come right away. Or even if you couldn't come, just say the word and heal him from a distance, right? You didn't have to come, just heal him. We are like Martha and Mary. We often think God is late based on our schedule, right? We want our problems and our pain to go away when? Yesterday, right? Jesus has eternally good purposes that he is achieving through our current circumstances, whether they're good or bad. You know, when circumstances are good, we generally just assume that we deserve them. How often do we say, Lord, I had hot water today in the shower. Wasn't that fabulous? Thank you for the hot water. But you know, when the hot water heater goes out, rah, 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 no hot water, you know? 
So thank God for the good things as well as whine about the bad things. When we suffer with pain or loss, we often complain to God with frustration and pain, like Martha and Mary. I want you to notice how Jesus responds to her. He gives her great compassion, great love. We're going to find out that he wept and he sorrowed and he loved them. Jesus does the same with us. Jesus knows all about our troubles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one, right? No one understands like Jesus. You can take your brokenness to Jesus and he understands and he responds to his sheep as the good shepherd with great compassion and great love and great care. And he carries us through the things that we cannot even walk through. So that's assumption number one. Second assumption is even more insidious. The second assumption is now that Lazarus is dead, there is nothing Jesus can do. I mean, he's all dead. You can't do anything about all dead, right? Jesus could heal the sick, but he's got no power over death. So Martha, even though she's grief-stricken, she is still a woman of great faith. She still believes that Jesus is God's son. She says two words you need to underline. Even now, even now, after he's died, I know that God will answer whatever request you make. She doesn't tell him how to pray, but she states her faith that Jesus and his Father are one, the deity of Christ, and God will answer whatever request to make. She doesn't know that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. She expresses her faith with a dead brother in the tomb for four days. Now, even now, faith believes that God can work in impossible situations. She says, even now, even though my brother's dead, I know that you are Lord of this situation. Even now, faith believes that even now, God can change people whom you love who hate Jesus, who ignore him. Why do you think we pray every week, every week, every week for the same people and a lot of new ones? Why do we pray? Because we believe that even now, God is not limited by their hard heart. The Lord is sovereign. And that's why the Lord says, pray without ceasing. Come to me, come to me. Even now, we believe that Jesus Christ can change our own failures, our own sinfulness, and make good come out of it. And Jesus assures Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, well, I know he's going to rise at the final resurrection. She knows that Jesus has said in John 5, 28, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. She believes in God's power in the distant future. She's not so sure about the here and now, right? We know that when he returns, he's going to return as sovereign king. The truth is, Jesus Christ rules as sovereign king even now. Even now, he is Lord over our suffering. Even now, he is Lord over our pain. Even now, he is Lord over life and death. We humans often misdiagnose our real problems. Mary and Martha think their problem is what? Their problem is that their brother is dead. And the solution was for Jesus to have prevented him from dying. That's the problem, and that's their solution. The problem is that they don't know they have. Their real problem is, is that their faith in Christ is inadequate. Their concept of Jesus Christ is limited. Their God is too small. They have God in a box, Jesus in a box saying, you can do a lot of stuff, but you can't raise the dead. That didn't even occur to them, right? They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God over life and death right here and right now. So Jesus' solution is to let Lazarus die resuscitate him from the dead, let them see the glory of God, the power of God by demonstrating his deity and strengthening their faith. I want to ask you something. If Jesus had prevented him from dying, would their faith have gotten this strong? I'm telling you, a resuscitation from the dead strengthened their faith far more than prevention of death. So when God allows you to go through suffering, he has a plan that is far greater than if he would not have allowed you to go through suffering and prevented it from occurring. And we're willing to trade that. We're willing to say, I used to say, God, love me less. Love me less. This hurts so bad. 
He says, no, because I love you so much, I don't want you living in regret for all eternity. I love you that much. Okay, thy will be done. Verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Here's the principle. Our faith is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, who gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Our faith is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all, who gives eternal life to those who believe in him. Now, this is the fifth of Jesus' seven I am statements. Remember that I am is the personal name of God, Yahweh, the covenant name of God. I am, that's his name. John records seven signs that point to his deity, but he also records seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Now, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I have the resurrection and the life. I bring the resurrection and the life. He doesn't say, I am a resurrection. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the creator, the one and only source of life. John tells us this, John 1, 3. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is talking in John 5. He says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. See, God has sovereignty over all things, including life and death. And Jesus then tells Martha how the eternal life of God is made accessible to us as sinful human beings. He says, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He's talking about physical life and death and spiritual life and death. Even though every one of us will physically die, those who place their faith in Christ as Savior will receive eternal life. They will never spiritually die. You know, most people are afraid of death. Some people should be afraid of death. Unbelievers should be far more afraid of death than they are. Seriously afraid. I talked to an 82-year-old this last week. He didn't have any problems at all. And he's on real thin ice with banana peels on top of it. You know, I'm going, <laughs> you should be more afraid than what you are. The believer may fear dying. The believer should never fear death. Now, dying may be painful, but death is the doorway into heaven. For the believer, death is graduation into glory. Believers will never die spiritually. They'll never be separated from God. They will live forever with God in heaven. And Martha demonstrates a great deal of faith based on a great deal of facts. When she says what she says, you can tell she's been listening to Jesus. I mean, her Christology is spot on. She says, one, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the promised one. You are the one who the Old Testament's been telling us about for hundreds of years. You are the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You are the Son of God. You are the exact nature. You are the exact essence as the Father in heaven. You are God. You are deity. Jesus has only been claiming that for three years. She got it. Even he who comes into the world. Jesus came into the world as the Messiah in human flesh. Now she says this with her brother dead. No resurrection. That's faith. She knows her Savior in the middle of no human solutions. That's where many of us live a good deal of the time. And this is a model for us. 
Martha often gets a bad rap. I mean, she is a woman of great faith, and she didn't declare this after her brother is raised. She declared it in the middle of a great deal of suffering and pain and disappointment and regret and sorrow. Good model for us. Let's summarize. Principle one, because God loves us, because God loves us, he often allows us to suffer. As a matter of fact, he arranges it which is designed for his glory and our good. It doesn't happen by accident. Suffering is not an accident. It is designed by God for his glory and our good. Number two, while we are on earth, God enables us to live without fear as we do his work. You are bulletproof until the day Jesus said, it's time for you to come home. I'm calling your name. So get on with what he's called you to do and live without fear. Number three, God often strengthens our faith in him by first allowing us to experience problems that have no human solutions. Some of us in this room today have problems with no human solutions. That's by design. You are to bring that no human solution, no human solution problem to the Lord every day, every day. And you say, Brad, I've been bringing this problem to the Lord for years. Yeah, keep bringing it to him. Just because he has an answer doesn't mean he hasn't heard. His timing is perfect. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. Trust him. Trust him. Number four, God's delay is not God's denial. Just because he says wait doesn't mean he said no. God intervenes in our life to solve problems we don't even know we have. We see the problem we have and we want God to solve that problem. God sees problems we don't know we have, and he's solving them for all eternity. Lastly, our faith is founded on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, including whatever circumstances you're in, including life and death, including eternal life, including sin and suffering, who gives eternal life to those who believe in him. He is the source of our life. Thank you for coming. Thanks for your attention. This is a very familiar passage, but... Hopefully the Holy Spirit can unpack this so you can see what's really going on. And we'll be here next week, Lord willing, and maybe the week after as well. So I love you, and now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.